The BBC is under fire again over the use, or rather non-use, of the word terrorism. During the troubles in Northern Ireland, Mrs Thatcher's Downing Street was constantly applying pressure on the corporation to call the IRA a terrorist organisation, which committed criminal acts. I remember being shouted at by Bernard Ingham, her press secretary, when I was a BBC editor, for not simply condemning militant republicanism, rather than attempting to understand and explain it. This week, after the appalling massacre of Israelis by Hamas militants, or should I say terrorists, both the Conservative Culture Secretary, Lucy Fraser, and Labour's David Lammy, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, have urged the BBC to describe those who attacked Israel last weekend as terrorists. Why is the BBC reluctant to do so? The corporation, as usual, is slow to explain itself. So I turned for enlightenment to Roger Mosey, the master of Selwyn College, Cambridge, who was head of BBC TV News and is a former editor of the Today programme and the author of a book called 20 Things That Would Make the News Better. We talked on Wednesday morning while Israeli troops were still gathering on the borders of Gaza. Roger Mosley, thank you for joining us. Uh, the BBC is under fire from right and left, from the government, uh, Lucy Fraser in particular, the Culture Secretary, and from David Lammy, Shadow Foreign Secretary, for not using frequently the word terrorist and suggesting the BBC does not like to use the term terrorism when it's describing what has happened in Israel and Gaza. Um, do you understand why the BBC is reluctant to use that one word? I do. And this goes back a long, long time. And uh, there's a particular reluctance to use words like terrorism on the BBC World Service and BBC World. Because when you're broadcasting to the whole globe, there are lots of areas in which those terms are highly contended. So, for instance, the Chinese would say that uh, some Uyghur activity is terrorism. Um, for a long time in Sri Lanka, you had the Tamil Tigers who would see themselves as freedom fighters and were condemned by the government there as terrorists. So, therefore, it's very hard across the world to be consistent on that. And I've watched this debate with obviously the horror of events happening in Israel, but also an understanding that these things are very complex and very difficult. I mean, I was struck by going back a long way when we were talking about things in Northern Ireland or when we were operating there, the British government was very keen that we should call the IRA terrorists. And it's very difficult not to do so if you go and look at some of the atrocities that they committed. But the problem with using one word is it, it, it narrows the argument, doesn't it? Uh, and because the IRA were more than terrorists, although they committed acts of terror. Do you think one of the concerns is that it's in the interest of any established, as it were, power or government to describe its opponents as terrorists? Because that makes means that it does not have to confront the circumstances which had produced these extreme actions. You put your finger on it, Roger, and that's exactly the thinking behind the editorial guidelines. But having watched events in the past week, the trouble is that editorially, sometimes you do need to take a decision which is not necessarily completely compatible with guidelines. And actually, if you look at the BBC now, there are web pages live on the BBC which describe 7-7 as the worst single terrorist atrocity on British soil. And when I was head of TV news when 7-7 happened, we had no hesitation in calling that terrorism. And I think there are times when you have to use that word. So 
Although the general policy makes sense, I was, for instance, very uncomfortable watching a report about the massacre at the kibbutz in which the reporter, this is actually on Channel 4, but the reporter referred to Hamas militants. And that seems in that particular context to be the wrong word. If you are slaughtering babies in this unspeakable fashion, I think it is terrorism. So there are times when the word militant won't do in those circumstances. So I I support the general policy while at the same time thinking you have to be flexible on occasions to look at the actual story and call it what it is. Although on that question of slaughtering of children, again, some people may think I'm being rather pedantic, but as far as I understand, that's a claim made by soldiers. It is very likely to be true, but I've noticed that Jeremy Bowen and other reports have said, according to soldiers, because I'm not sure if any outsider reporters have actually seen the horrific bodies other than in body bags. I mean, I think it's a reasonable assumption that that's what has happened, but I don't think we actually know, do we? I I think that may be a fair point, Roger, but there is no question in my mind that what we saw in Israel at the weekend was terrorism by Hamas. Now, I think the BBC has been flexible to the extent that it has said Hamas is regarded by the British government as a terrorist organisation. It is perfectly possible, as happened, for James Cleverly to go on the Today programme and call it terrorism. So there's no ban on the word. I just think that in particular circumstances, and you're right, we need to verify exactly what happened, but there are some acts that are unquestionably terrorism. And, of course, the BBC guidelines really give the game away by referring to terror and terrorism. So uh, if terror and terrorism have some meaning, they have sometimes to have some application. So I'm, I'm not being equivocal here because I think this is genuinely difficult. But I think it's possible to have a policy which is long term and quite wise, while at the same time, you sometimes need to make an editorial decision that may differ slightly from uh, the guidelines. The guidelines I come back to it, don't actually ban the use of terrorism. They just advise to be cautious in using But I, I think if I was in Gaza, uh, or maybe parts of the West Bank or whatever, and I was being bombed by Israeli aircraft, um, uh, I would be terrified, and I would think, why are they doing this? And some would say, well, they're doing this. To, it's an act of terror because they wish to stop you supporting in any way or any form uh, the militants. And they would say, this what? look at the scale of deaths usually more Palestinians killed than Israelis. This is terrorism. And then they would also point, this is why it's so difficult, the activities of right-wing settlers in the past, going over into villages, burning them and so on. And they would say, that's acts of terrorism. And so when you're, you know, once you start to use the word for one side, the other side will come and say, hey, well, what about this? What about this? I mean, isn't bombing large civilian settlements terrorism? But slaughtering 250 or more people at a music festival is terrorism. And if it happened, God forbid, in the United Kingdom, we would call it terrorism. So sometimes the word will be appropriate. Where you're right, Roger, is that there are times in the Middle East when there is if you like, military action, in inverted commas, on both sides, where rockets are fired from one side and missiles are fired from the other side. And in those cases, I think it would be wrong to say one side is terrorist and one side is defence. So it's not always going to be something where you choose the vocabulary the Israeli government would prefer. But equally, there are times when humanity requires that if terrorism has meaning, you label it as such. Can we talk about how well equipped the BBC is now to deal with uh, these international situations? Somebody who was once quite senior in the BBC said to us that 
and they're in the Middle East. I haven't watched any BBC coverage, just all Arabic channels plus CNN. Sadly, the BBC is not really taken seriously here after the terrible merger of the two TV channels. Well, obviously, um, you know, the bosses of news who succeeded you did not want to merge these two channels, but felt they had no alternative given the financial situation the BBC is in. But do you think the result of that is that the BBC reporting, BBC's reporting of this conflict, particularly across the world, has been diminished because of that merger? First, there are some strengths from having the merger. It means that on a major international story like this, you can pool resources and give one global feed on a huge global story. So it has some advantages. The problem becomes that, first of all, um, what has happened in general, I think, since the merger in April is the BBC has prioritised the UK rolling news over sometimes the international. So when you had some of the stories, Gary Lineker, Hugh Edwards and others uh, rolling on the BBC News Channel, it must have been rather baffling to people in Singapore or Paraguay that they were getting this rather domestic agenda. So I think the long term loss is probably on the international focus channel. The second thing is that you do, of course, start getting World Service and BBC World language going out on the UK service. So uh, the most obvious one is UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak or UK Finance Minister Jeremy Hunt. So you start getting that language. And of course, on a story like this, the terrorism prohibition, which has always been felt more strongly on BBC World and World Service, then becomes the default for the domestic service. So whereas I think that you would have had a rather greater editorial leeway if the services had been separate. Once they're together, that's why it may seem at times like there's probably an unnecessary avoidance at times of the word terrorism. Now, we are into a propaganda war, which has been fought at the same time. Obviously, it always happens in, great, in, in conflicts, but it's here. And I wonder how you would have felt as an editor or head of TV news as you were dealing with this. Israel has a very sophisticated news operation. It's very welcoming to journalists in terms of provision of uh, broadcasting facilities and so on. And, uh, of course, the English of its uh, spokespeople, notably Mark Rigger, who's been brought back into the government, um, is exceptional. He's a former British ambassador and so on. So Israel is very well tooled up for a propaganda war. Then you look at the situation in Gaza in particular, where BBC does have a correspondent, a, a local figure, who is is not very experienced, finds it great difficulty, finds it too dangerous to broadcast live. And so you're faced with an imbalance in terms of your available material. How do you, how do you deal with that? You don't intend, therefore, to be biased to one side or another, but you just have so, it's so much easier and you have so much material from, from coming from one side in a conflict. In radio, it won't matter so much. In television, that's a real difficulty, isn't it? It is. And most obviously, I salute the bravery of the journalists who are reporting on both sides of, of this conflict. And there has been some extraordinary reporting from Gaza. And I noticed that Channel 4, although they didn't have a correspondent in Gaza, I don't think they did use pictures coming from Gaza. So people will do their best efforts. I, I, I don't want to, I, I don't think it's right now to think about um, Israel in quite the terms you did as simply being a better PR operation, because clearly, the hurt and the terror in Israel has been enormous. No, I don't and want to suggest simply, I'm just acknowledging the fact that side, now it has to fight. It would see itself as fighting for its survival. And a central part of that war and legitimate part will be a propaganda war. And I'm just saying that you standing outside, if you're in your former role, has this difficulty 
that there's an imbalance in terms of the sophistication of the propaganda. But there are plenty of Palestinian spokespeople, and I've seen Hamas spokesmen on TV and heard them on radio, and there are plenty of people to make the Palestinian case. So I I don't think the argument goes by default. Um, I think what you have to recognise here, Roger, is this is enormously complex. It is very difficult indeed. And on the whole over the years, I think the BBC has got the Middle East as right as it is possible to get it. Though I think where I did bridle slightly was um, seeing John Simpson's tweet um, about not using the word terrorism, where he implied that the opposite of that is to rant. And I think that was a rather unwise choice of words. There are people for all sorts of conscientious and good reasons who think that the word terrorism should be used here. And to dismiss them in that way is probably not terribly helpful. So I hope the BBC can engage with this. It needs to explain itself better. It is doing very well generally in its coverage of the war. But all the time, it's got to be aware that it has to keep the understanding and loyalty of its audiences. And some audiences will be very alienated by not using the word terrorism on what seems to be a terrorist attack. It's always very difficult in these circumstances to to stand back and to say, we should look at the root causes of this. And the moment you start to do that, people will understandably get very angry, particularly within Israel, faced with the appalling atrocities that have been committed there. How dare you even discuss that anything could, by implication, justify what had happened. But, you know, without trying remotely to justify that, if one look at root causes, do you think that it's an appropriate time to raise issues such as the total absence of any possibility of negotiated settlements, of peace talks, of any significant attempts now by anybody to develop a two-state solution to this problem? Is it just impossible while this sort of crisis is continuing to raise those issues? Indeed, some ways, should you not raise them until the fighting has ended? I think you should raise them. And what I have felt to be an omission in the BBC's portfolio in recent years is the ability to do a peak time special that looks at all the background and all the context in these kind of cases. And I think it's probably slightly easier because of it being closer to us to think about um, Ireland, where uh, you mentioned it earlier, Roger, and I think two things can be true, which is that um, you need to understand the context of Ireland and uh, the relationship between uh, mainland Britain and Ireland over centuries to quite make out what's happening in Ireland and what was happening. On the other hand, it's also true that uh, putting a bomb which kills small children in Warrington is an evil act. So the two things are both possible to um, explain and to report, and you do need to do both of them. And I think with the Middle East, it is enormously complex. And some people choose to go back to 1947. Some people choose to go back to 1923. Tell that whole story. And you'll find that somewhere on the web and usually on Radio 4, there have been pieces of try to do that. There probably isn't quite enough of it in television and certainly in peak time television, where um, if you have a, a poorly performing schedule, as BBC One sometimes does, um, doing something that is a real statement of public interest and the major international story of our time is something they should do. Can we now, I mean, we're all expecting, and at the time of speaking it hasn't happened, um, the land invasion of by Israel of, of, of Gaza. Um, that will obviously again totally dominate 
the headlines. Uh, but are there wider questions? The reporting you suggested on the ground is very good. But stepping back as an editor, would you be asking wider questions? Are there some unanswered questions now that really should be people should look into about the nature of the conflict? Yes, and I don't believe at all in the myth of a golden age or when the BBC reporting was absolutely marvellous and perfect. But there is always room, and there is room now, for more context. And um, the BBC should be expanding its bulletins and has expanded some of its bulletins. It should be giving the widest possible context. And as an editor, there are questions about the role of Egypt or uh, what's happening in the Saudi-Israeli relationship that must find space in the bulletins as well as simply uh, the fact that there are rockets and missiles being launched. And and I think that um, if you can give that wider picture, and the BBC, when it puts its mind to covering a big international story, is very good indeed. And so is CNN, and so is Channel 4, and so is ITV News, and so is Sky News. But they can, all of them, I think, sometimes take a step back, should take a step back, and ask the questions which are not being answered. So I, I tweeted this week a, a piece by my former colleague, Danielle Nagler, who is, I think, in Israel. And she asked 10 questions that were not currently being asked. And they're very good questions. So you can't expect all of them to be answered in one bulletin. But you'd hope that over a period, all the mix of the Today programme and Newsnight and Channel 4 News and everybody else will get to those questions. And one of those questions that she raised, and you've just mentioned, is uh, why uh, Egypt doesn't um, open its southern border to allow refugees out from Gaza. And uh, there may be a number of practical reasons why they're doing that, but the, but but I have not seen that question asked. And it's a very significant one because if you do talk about uh, Palestinians being trapped in in Gaza, unable to get out, one of the reasons the border with Egypt is closed. Uh, now, to an extent, one would speculate about why that is the case, but the question should be asked, shouldn't it? Absolutely, there are all sorts of questions that need to be asked about the region and behaviour. And I think the point here is that um, even though, and, and I, I personally, as all of us, I'm sure, were, was horrified by what happened in Israel at the weekend, um, it doesn't mean that you have to accept everything that the Netanyahu government does or everything that the Egyptian government does. Um, and uh, there are absolutely proper errors to reporting, which is why Jeremy Bowen and Lise Doucette and others are are so essential to our understanding of those stories. And I want more of it. I think there should be much more. They should be given more time. They should be given greater context. And within the, the general assessment that the BBC's coverage has been very good, uh, there should be more of it for its audiences. And finally, there will be a propaganda war at home, won't there? I mean, we've seen, we saw initially, obviously, demonstrations for, if one can call it, both sides, outside embassies and so on. There will now be intense pressure on everything that is written or said by the BBC. Do you think that there's any other story, if you like, other than the Mid-East conflict, which is so difficult to report consistently because of the intense pressure put upon organisations and journalists? I mean, the temptation, it was tough during Ireland. I think this is worse. And the danger is always to pull back, uh, to 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 adopt a sort of neutral stance in some ways, which would be the wrong thing, wouldn't it? Yes, the, the BBC has to make editorial decisions. And sometimes that has to be informed by a sense of what is right and what is wrong. So whatever your level of support for the Palestinian cause, the people celebrating in the streets of London on Saturday night, the fact that so many Israelis have been massacred, 
seems to me to be unacceptable. And if you are concerned about hate crimes, that is a hate crime. So you can't be morally neutral and say it's just all about two sides. There will equally be times when maybe an Israeli missile hits a hospital in Gaza, uh, when that also is something which is a matter of very, very great concern. You have to recognise that um, you can't be morally neutral. You can't think that everything is a 50-50 call. Um, So it's tough doing it. And I agree with you. I think this is about the most difficult thing the BBC has to cover after many years, decades of difficulty in covering Ireland. Um, But it does a good job generally, and I hope it will keep learning lessons and, and getting better still. Roger Mosey, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, we'll be talking to BBC veteran Ed Sturton. Please do support our podcast, which is less than £2 per month. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash beatwatch. That's patreon.com forward slash beatwatch, where you will also receive a weekly newsletter. You can find this link on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform, where you will also find details of how to contact us. And if you didn't know already, this podcast is presented by me, Roger Bolton, and is produced by Kate Dixon. The sound is by Dave Kitto, and special thanks to Quingenti. It is a good egg production. Until next time, goodbye.